The reading is from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, I was in touch with Paul this past week. Now, um, some of you uh, are perhaps wondering why we don't use his surname, why his picture's not been up on the slides, but it's because he, he's in a dangerous place, and if we're careless about our communications, uh, he could be expelled or worse, uh, and the people he's working with. So we're careful. But Paul uh, has been in, in, in place about three and a half months now, and, uh, and, and he just wants you to know how much he appreciates you. His words were, I couldn't be here without them. Your support, your prayers, your giving, thank you. And thank you to you on behalf of AIM for the partnership we have. I've also been in touch with his team leader, who says, and again I quote, he's doing amazingly well, settling into life, to team, to ministry, to language learning. He's learning a dialect of Arabic. He's gone there to, in obedience to the command we've just read, and St. Mary's has sent him in obedience to that command. And I think we understand when Jesus talks about making disciples because you and I are disciples and we were made a disciple we know the process we went through to become a disciple and to grow as a disciple we are discipling others one on one in groups but what does it mean to disciple nations now bear in mind that uh, the word nations in this passage and elsewhere in the New Testament is the Greek word ethne from which we get our word ethnic it's describing ethnic groupings tribes, peoples with their own language and culture, their own identity. Well, listen to this story from Africa, which does a good job of illustrating this concept. A whole tribe, a whole nation being impacted and starting to be transformed by the gospel. It's from a man who calls himself Daniel. In the small African country we call home, there is a small, there is a Muslim tribe of around three million people. We first began looking for ways to share Christ with them 30 years ago. However, they always looked at us with great suspicion. And for years, it was difficult to make any roads among them, inroads among them. As a minority group, they could see their language and culture slowly eroding and a great risk of disappearing altogether. They blamed the government and the Christians for this. So I suppose looking at us with suspicion was understandable. Like them, we believed that the disappearance of their language and culture was not God's desire. So after 17 years living among them, we began to work on a Bible translation to help preserve their language. As we did this, we invited leaders in the tribe to talk with us about the project. At first, they were suspicious and a little hostile, but we soon noticed the change 
as they felt honored by the high quality of our work. Increasingly, they began to lean on us to help them preserve their language and culture. Then something remarkable happened. As they read the scriptures, certain chiefs were impacted by the teaching they saw. High levels of divorce among their people had become a huge problem. So when they heard Bible passages about marriage, they asked us for a booklet containing these verses to be printed. Soon, judges who were issuing divorces had these booklets in their hands. After reading the verse from the Bible, what God has joined together, let let man not separate, many judges began telling squabbling couples, because God put you together, I don't have the authority to grant you a divorce. The judges go on to insist the couple read the booklet together because, as they say, it will preserve our language and change our life. Across the tribe, it is also being used to counsel couples. Divorce rates have dropped considerably and leaders convicted by other passages in the word of God have stopped taking bribes. A handful of high-level chiefs who each rule between 30 and 150,000 people have now submitted their lives to Jesus. They report that a few hundred in their tribe have begun following Jesus too. They are now requesting we produce books on what the Bible says about leadership, a book containing Bible verses that will teach their children good behavior. Now having gained the trust of the overall chief of the tribe, he's strongly promoting all these books among his people. Simple discipleship and obedience to the word of God is impacting a whole society, a whole tribe, a whole people. Today our topic from the text is the Great Commission, but more specifically, oop, more specifically, what's so great about the Great Commission? Many find these words from Matthew 28 greatly intimidating. They produce a kind of nervousness, and we think we have to come with the mental equivalent of body armor on because we think, we think we're going to be pointed at and, and we'll be challenged to, to give more, to pray more, and perhaps even to go to some inhospitable place in Africa where the people not only don't welcome our message, but they become hostile to us if we proclaim it faithfully. I hope you will be stirred to whatever is an appropriate response, but I pray that through this response today, Because by God's Spirit, through his word, you you gain a fresh appreciation of this great commission and the great Savior who uttered it. So why is this uh, command of our Lord Jesus so great? Well, it's great because it sets before us an immensely great and difficult task, which requires great sacrifice. Going is difficult. It means leaving behind the things and people we love, the familiar, the secure, the comfortable. In 1812, Adoniram Judson, an American, wrote to the father of Anne Hasseltine, the woman he was hoping to marry and take to Burma, modern-day Myanmar, with him as a missionary, to ask for her hand in marriage. Now, what do you think about this as a letter to a future father-in-law? Sir, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to, to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to expose her to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climates of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you and for the sake of 
perishing, immortal souls for the sake of the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the, in the certain hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? How's that for a letter? One of Anne's father's friends said he would rather tie his daughter to a post than let her go anywhere with this madman. But Anne's father was made of sterner stuff, and uh, they got married, and uh, Adoniram's description of what might happen to his wife in Burma was remarkably close to what transpired. She died nine years after their arrival, after losing all three of their children, two of them to tropical diseases. Much other suffering besides. Going was difficult back then. Going is still difficult today, particularly because the remaining unreached people groups remain largely unreached because they are in difficult to reach harsh places. So the Great Commission is great because going can be hugely, um, hugely difficult and painful and it usually requires great sacrifice. It also, therefore, requires great faith. If going is difficult, making disciples is impossible. We can't make disciples because we can't make anyone a Christian. This command is like saying, go to the graveyard, pick a tomb, and raise that person from the dead. We are, the Bible tells us, dead by nature, dead in our transgressions and sins. Nothing fellow humans can do can change the deadness of our spirits. We have no innate ability to hear the call of the gospel unless God's Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. We need to be born again of God. And the level of impossibility is raised several notches um, because we're not just to make disciples of individuals here and there, but of whole nations, as I've said. And if with God's help we are enabled to make some disciples, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, have them publicly affirm what God has done inwardly, bringing all kinds of persecution and sufferings down upon them. And then we have to teach them to obey, not just information transfer, but life transformation. Again, apart from God's help, impossible. This great commission requires, therefore, great sacrifice and great faith in the God of the impossible. That's why it's great. In the country where Paul serves, a people group in the south had never had a Christian amongst them until 2015. After many patient years of sowing in tears by missionaries who went to that group, a man came to Christ in that year, 2015. Then there began a trickle of people who started coming to faith, rejecting the faith of their people and their ancestors. Today, there are 1,000 baptized believers in that group. They have seen miracles of healing and deliverance. They have stood against strong community and even government pressure. Recently, several of them were released from prison. A miracle of grace. The measure of of the greatness of these words is that they came to just 11 people because this task requires not only great sacrifice, great faith, but also great weakness. When we read this passage, we read it with 2,000 years of church history behind us, with obedience to this command having produced a truly worldwide church in every nation on earth, yes, even in North Korea and Saudi Arabia. So it doesn't come to us with the same kind of force, the same sense of sheer immensity and impossibility. And yet Jesus is about to entrust to these 11 the task of building his church in the world. And they had never even been beyond the borders of Palestine. 
The number 11 is in itself a sign of weakness in the face of this task. The of course, had betrayed Christ. The rest had all abandoned him in his hour of need. His, the leader of the apostles had, had strenuously denied that he even knew Christ. They had all these disciples in the previous three years uh, demonstrated small-mindedness, pride, self-centeredness, slowness to understand, understand, bordering on willful blindness. Nor were any of them from the religious or educated or wealthy elite. They were unschooled, ordinary men. And yet Jesus is passing this task of building his church onto these 11. And some of them, we are told in verse 17, are what? Doubting. Even now. There's that apocryphal story of Jesus ascending to heaven and the angels asking him when he arrives after his resurrection. So what's the plan, Jesus? And Jesus pointed to these 11 men and the angels turned to him somewhat skeptically and asked, and what's plan B? Well, there was no plan B. These 11 men were it. And I wonder if some of you, as you come to this passage like some of the disciples are doubting, doubting that Jesus could use you, yes, even you in this great enterprise. This is a subtle snare of the enemy. I recall when uh, my wife and I were were working in uh, Muslim-dominated northern Mozambique, feeling utterly useless and ready to throw in the towel. I prayed to God, oh Lord, why, why, there must be other better equipped, uh, better missionaries out there. Why didn't you send them? Why didn't you send them? And I remember the strong impression on my spirit of the Holy Spirit saying to me, yes, yes, there are better people, better equipped people out there. But I didn't send them. I sent you. And perhaps you too are discouraged by your sin and failure. You look around at the divisions and problems in the church, the enormous task that remains, and you ask, you ask the question, what difference can I possibly make? And you too hesitate. You doubt. But God's power is made perfect in our weakness, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. And it has ever been so. God gets all the glory when we acknowledge our weakness, our unsuitability for the task, and yet step out and watch him use our stumbling efforts to extend his kingdom. So how can you use your stumbling efforts in this great task? You are now no doubt asking. Well, um, John has already referred to these uh, opportunities. You have this large number of asylum seekers housed in a hotel here in in Maidenhead, I'm told. A great way for you to explore and engage in cross-cultural evangelism to get involved in the teams, the ministry teams that are reaching out to these, these growing numbers of asylum seekers and refugees here. In addition to all the ways that the church is already reaching out to people from all walks of life in this community. You could play a very real role also in uh, uh, becoming knowledgeable about your, your mission partners, starting to pray for them. You could take time to get to know the ministry that they're involved, to make contact with them, to let them know that you're praying for them. Possibly also consider visiting them or meeting with them when they're back at home. You could consider also a calling to cross-cultural service yourself. Paul must be, of course, fresh in our minds right now. AIM and other agencies like us have abundant opportunities to help you find your fit in answering a call of God to, re- to reach the unreached, whether in Africa or anywhere else. Speak to me afterwards. Take some of our literature. Go to our website. So this great commission defines a great God-sized task made all the greater, all the more impossible because it is trusted to frail, doubting, hesitating, sinful saints like you and me. It therefore needs a great foundation. 
a great foundation, a foundation which Aberdeen born Mary Slessor of Calabar. Calabar is, uh, was, called, was what southeast uh, Nigeria is today. Um, she understood this very well when she responded to the question, are you not afraid of going alone to the malarial swamps and jungles of Calabar, a veritable graveyard of missionaries? Why should I, for, I fear, she replied. I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the King of Kings. And here is the foundation Mary Slessor and many others have gone forth, have trusted in. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Something has happened so that Jesus was given something. Something is true for Jesus that was not true of him before. Authority was given to him. The Lord and creator of the universe had to be given authority. What could this mean? Well, what is so great about these words is that they are not just the climax of Matthew's gospel. They are actually the climax of the Bible's whole story. If we substitute the word dominion for authority in that verse, so that it reads, all dominion in heaven and earth has been given to me, this reminds us of the dominion Adam was given over creation, to order it, to claim it, to bring it under his rule and management. But Adam forfeited that dominion when he rebelled. And humanity has been living in the consequences of that ever since, in all the dysfunction and misery and confusion and shame. And it's not just that we've lost our guilt and shame, but we've, we're lost in our destiny. We've fallen short of the glory for which we were created. We have lost the privileges that we were created for. And this is the story of the whole Bible. What Adam failed to do, Jesus, the second Adam, will do. And the guilt that Adam incurred because of his son, sin, Jesus will undo. And the dominion that Adam lost, Jesus will have restored to him. Of course, he is the eternal son of God who rules and reigns over all things. But that doesn't provide salvation and restoration for us. Our only hope of restoration is when someone comes, someone else comes and does what Adam failed to do. And Jesus came and did that. And he did it in our humanity as the son of man. Now that Jesus has done all that, he says, all authority, all dominion in heaven and earth has been given to me. What Jesus did by his death and resurrection was that he so undid what Adam had failed to do that in a sense, as a reward for that, his father has given not only him, but us also back what Adam lost. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's about what the dominion of God does when the dominion enters our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the dominion of God is in their lives. So he's starting the work of restoration here. And here are these 11 disciples on the mountain who've experienced the dominion of God. And he's saying to them in this extraordinary statement, you're going to be my, you're going to go as my ambassadors because all authority has been given to me. And you're going to uh, uh, proclaim this, this great authority. This, this authority was given to me because I was given over to death, given over to the worst that Satan could do, given over to the guilt of your sin, because I crushed the head of the serpent Satan, because I was vindicated by my resurrection. Now that this new world order has begun, you are going to go to the ends of the earth, and those you win and disciple, you will teach to do the same. And you're going to express that authority in your lives, in your witness, and in your fruitfulness. So it is a great commission. Because it sets before the disciples of Jesus a great and humanly impossible task, but one which has a great foundation underpinning it, the authority of Jesus himself. In fact, we cannot bear this command to go unless we know that Christ has this authority. 
Missions is about reclaiming what belongs to Jesus. It's possible for us, therefore, to live in a way that Jesus wants us to live, to go in the way he wants us to go, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's his. Therefore, none of the authority is ours. We have no, no authority over our lives, our calling, our ambitions, our money, our relationships. You don't have authority over the circumstances that surround you. That's why Christ, non-Christians hate the gospel. That's why Christians love it. It's, if all authority is his and none is ours, then I can live in contentedness in whatever my circumstances, whether in riches or poverty, in marriage, marriage or singleness, in sickness or in, or in health, because I know that he is in control. He has all dominion. Nothing happens to you or me apart from his authority. And when that goes deep into my soul, it transforms every detail of my life, every reaction, every action. I can say that because he has all authority, nothing can happen to me outside of his sovereign grace. And that's what these 11 needed to hear as he commanded them to finish the work of building the church that he had begun. And if we get this, if we truly get it, we will be gripped by the greatness of our Savior, by his great grace towards us. And as, and we would say, as C.T. Studd, the founder of WEC Mission, once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I can make can be too great for me to make for him. We still need to understand this in the 21st century because despite 2,000 years of church history and growth, there is still much to be done. Those who study these things tell us that in 1900, 33% of the world was Christian. In the year 2000, 33% of the world was Christian. In the, in the, in the year 2050, and nothing changes, 33% of the world will be Christian. What of those who have no access to the gospel, who realistically will have no chance to hear the good news and respond to it in their lifetime? Well, again, those who study these things tell us that 54% of the world was unevangelized in 1900, and 28% is unevangelized now. That's good news. The percentage of the world with no access to the gospel has dropped significantly. However, the bad news, in 1900, the total population of those who were unevangelized was 880 million people. Today, due to population growth, that number has risen to over, well over one, uh, 2 billion so while the percentage of unevangelized uh, people has been cut in half, the total number of people with no access to the gospel has more than doubled. The remaining task has grown in size. So if you measure those groups that do not even have a local indigenous church that can bring the gospel to the whole group without the aid of missionaries coming in, Joshua Project lists around 7,000 of these groups without a viable church amongst them. And the brutal fact is that none of our existing efforts will reach all of the people in all of the groups anytime soon. This is partly because most Christian effort goes to places where the church is rather than places where it isn't. Most money given to Christian causes is spent on ourselves and even most mission money is spent in majority Christian areas. Deployment of personnel also reflects this problematic imbalance. Only 3% of cross-cultural missionaries serve among the unreached. And so this commission is great because of the immense task still facing the Church of Christ in all its great weakness and because it is undergirded by the great foundation of Christ's authority and power. And finally, because it is undergirded by the great promise of his presence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Jesus is identifying himself here as the God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 as, I am who I am. This I am is the same Jesus who was named prophetically as Emmanuel, God with us. He now promises to be with his disciples always. He knew and they knew that the path ahead would be full of suffering and sacrifice. He promises to be a light in their darkness, joy in their sorrow, comfort in their distress, and support in sickness and death. He promises never to leave or forsake them. The Great Commission is great because it is an impossibly great task to be carried out by frail children of dust like you and me, but which has a great foundation in the authority given to a great Savior who makes a great promise of his abiding presence with us. Another great missionary pioneer, William Carey, once said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for him. And this Great Commission is a great invitation to do just that. St. Mary's has accepted this invitation, this challenge, and in response to it has sent out workers to various places and is reaching out to the community around the church. What part will you play in this great work? Amen.